today. I have never had the privilege of going on vacation to an all-inclusive resort. If you've ever been to one of these, I think the idea behind it is that, that you go, say, to the beach or on a cruise, and everything that you would normally do is done for you, right? They make the food for you, so you just go to the buffet, or they're there to bring you drinks as you just sit on the, the chair on the beach. All the normal stuff that makes up life and makes life you know, challenging and labor-filled is supposed to be done for you, and you don't have to worry about it. It sounds very, very restful. And I imagine that there's some of these that even might like parent your children for you so that you can go and just drop them off and just be by yourself. Because that's actually the thing that you know, makes vacation challenging. For me, vacation normally looks like a family get-together. We just went for the last two weeks with, to go see family in Ohio, and vacation involved a two-day trip to Ohio, then, you know, six days, six joy-filled, activity-filled days in a house of 17 people. They, they were wonderful. We got to see my sister and all her children. All our children got to play together. I got to, you know, school them in Mario Kart again. It was, it was fantastic. But to call it restful would be to stretch the word beyond belief. Only in a very abstract, exhausting sense could you call that restful. We have, after we take the two-day trip back, you might be, well... I had a deeper appreciation for the solitude and quiet of my church office. It was wonderful. Now, this is the question that you might be wondering when you hear this famous and, and beloved invitation of Jesus, Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. What is this rest of Jesus that so many people throughout the ages have found comfort in? This invitation of Jesus to come to him and find rest. But this rest still seems to include carrying something, a yoke. It's a lighter and easier yoke than the one that you were carrying, but it's still working. And you might be wondering this if you've been with us the last couple weeks, which, while I was not, I was able to listen over uh, the internet and hear as Pastor Bruick led you through some pretty challenging conversations and words from Jesus. Words about what it means to follow Jesus that, if you remember them, don't sound like rest. I mean, a couple weeks ago, Pastor Bruick taught you how faith in Jesus, personal faith in Jesus, always leads to public confession of Jesus, a public pointing of other people to him. And that, that private faith cannot but become public and therefore, well, create division. Create people who will hear and gladly receive and those who will reject and not receive. Right? And so last week he talked about the Christ follower's dream. How following Jesus includes broken relationships, divisive conversations, thankless service. It, because the reality is that this Prince of Peace who brought forgiveness and life and salvation, who brings us rest, also brings a sword. A sword that divides us from our most precious relationships, from nation, from family, from everything else other than himself. So you might be justified, and you'd be, be under, it's understandable if you're wondering, what exactly is this rest Jesus promises us? Because it doesn't sound terribly restful. So that is the question I want to take up today as we walk through this passage. We're going to look at the passage in three parts, each of which asking, how does Jesus teach us about the nature of the rest that he grants us here and now in following him? 
Now, I want to get one thing out of the way right up front, which is I don't think that here Jesus is speaking about what we might call the final rest or the eternal rest of the resurrection. When he returns to raise our bodies and renew our minds and spirits to live in the eternal day of God's new creation, that is the eternal blessed rest for which we all long and hope. But I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. Here he is talking about exchanging a heavy yoke that you're carrying now for a lighter yoke that you carry now. And that's the rest he's talking about. So in some sense, now we have, through coming to Jesus in faith and following him, we have this thing he calls rest. What exactly is it? We're going to break it down into three parts. And I'm going to sum it up and we'll go and then flesh out each one. The rest of following Jesus is the knowledge and confidence that God, that in Christ, God is sovereign, that God is known, and that God is gracious. That in Christ, we are confident that God is sovereign, that God is known, and that God is gracious. So let's take each in its own part. In verse 25 and 26, we get another kind of challenging word from Jesus that teaches us that God is sovereign even when he is resisted. Look at verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. I don't know how often you have thanked God or acknowledged God for hiding the gospel from certain people. It's kind of a strange prayer from Jesus. It makes us wonder, well, well wait a second, why would Jesus pray this? Isn't he supposed to be, to be delighting in, in all that are coming to him? Well, when we put this passage and this verse in its context, we're, we're able to understand what Jesus is talking about. Because he has just been addressing a key issue that is weighing on all his disciples' minds. He's been ministering in the region of Galilee, traveling amongst the cities, and many have responded to him in faith and followed him, and many have not. And many of those who have not are the wise, respectable, religious elite, the wealthy, the powerful, those who seem to be generally on board with whatever is true and right. They're the ones rejecting Jesus. And so Jesus has actually, in the passage just before this, been pronouncing woes on the cities that have rejected him. And these aren't just any cities. These are the cities like Capernaum, where he based his ministry. Cities where he went frequently, like Chorazin and Bethsaida. He says, then he be- or in verse 20, Matthew writes, Then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. Woe to you, Capernaum! Will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. These are the things that Jesus is talking about when he says that you have hidden these things. This ministry of Jesus and in his forerunner, John the Baptist, that have been hidden. Hidden from a certain group of people. Now, now what are these people? Because instantly, in fact, maybe when you heard me say the word sovereign, you thought, wait a second, we're Lutherans. We don't talk about God's sovereignty. That's what Reformed people talk about. But the truth is, is that there's a deeply biblical teaching here that God is reigning. He is Lord. He is in control, even when he's resisting. And there's a whole host of things that, as Lutherans, sometimes we are afraid to talk about because someone else gets them wrong. 
Someone else might talk about it wrongly, so we just don't talk about it at all. But the truth is, is that Jesus teaches us here, God is in control even when people are rejecting him. Now, that does not mean that he arbitrarily chooses some to reject him. Because the passage so tells us who it is that reject him. The wise and understanding. It would not be wrong to translate this passage, the wise guys and the know-it-alls. Because the knowledge and wisdom that these people have has actually blinded them to Jesus. It's not a real knowledge and wisdom. It's some thing they're confident in. Some knowledge, some idea, some truth they have and they're holding tenaciously to. Maybe it's the traditions of the oral Torah. Maybe it's that the law of Moses is definitive for telling us who God is. Maybe it's their, their definition of salvation, freedom for Israel from Rome. Maybe it's their own family and personal or and, and individual pride and relationships to themselves and their families. Whatever it may be, it's something they know is so true that they can't let it go in order to see the Messiah. So this knowledge they have has actually made them blind to the gospel of the Messiah who came in humility. So Jesus is thanking God. He's acknowledging that precisely because God sent him to be the Messiah that he is, the Messiah who doesn't come in shining lights and blazing angels, but who comes in humility and in service, he has made the Messiah impossible to see by those who refuse to let go of their own definition and knowledge of salvation. Which means he's only been visible to those who, like children, know nothing. They don't have anything sure enough to hold on to. And so they're able to see him. Now, this is addressing the disciples' legitimate concern. I mean, if you were joining some movement and you looked around and you saw all the homeless people, all the drug addicts, all the prostitutes, and you, all the, the educated elites were not following, you might be justified in thinking, I should probably check the company I'm following. This does not look terribly reputable. And that's what the disciples are worried about. And Jesus is saying to these disciples, God is in control even now. God foresaw this rejection just as he has throughout the whole history of Israel. He has used the rejection and rebellion of human beings to serve his purpose. He did it with the exile. He did it with Pharaoh's hardening of heart. He's going to do it once and for all in the cross when, he will be, when Jesus, his son, will be betrayed and handed over to the religious, by the religious leaders to the Roman authorities. God will be working even then in the cross, fulfilling his plan even in the midst of human rebellion. And he's doing that here and now as people resist him. So how does this give us rest? Well, how much of your striving in life comes from your suspicion that the people who are in charge don't actually know what they're doing? That they're not in control. And because they're not in control, you need to take control. You need to do this a little bit better, try a little bit harder, figure out some new thing, some different thing that allows you to be the one in charge so that you can make sure that the outcome you want happens. But if you believe in Jesus, if you're trusting Jesus as your Messiah, then what you're trusting is that his Father is actually Lord, both over those who believe and those who do not. So that means that as you go about bearing public witness and faithfully speaking about Jesus, you can trust that even as, as your culture turns its back on him, as your family members turn their back on him, God is still in control. God is still Lord even then. And you don't need to worry that somehow the reason these people have rejected it is because you've done it wrong or because Jesus is not enough. God is Lord even when people reject him. 
Now, this, of course, brings to our minds this, the idea of eternal election and, and the anxieties that go up with it. But, but it's important to see that I don't think that's what Jesus is actually talking about here. Jesus is not talking about the, the idea that before all time God chose some to be saved and chose some not to be saved. That's, that's not what actually he's talking about. That's actually a, a misrepresentation of Jesus' teaching. Because some of the people who rejected Jesus here may very well have turned to believe him. And a great example of this would be James, his brother. His brother, who would have grown up with him in Nazareth, his hometown, who, who would have known him during his ministry, rejected him as the Messiah until after his resurrection. So the fact that they rejected him here early in his ministry in Galilee doesn't mean they always will. But it means as long as they're holding on to some knowledge or certainty that they think they have, they will never be able to see him until they're able to let go and trust like little children that he is the Messiah they need, even if he's not the Messiah they thought they needed. So we can trust the rest that we have in life is being able to follow Jesus knowing that God is in control, even when things don't go the way we think they should. The second aspect of this rest is that God is known to us in Jesus, truly and completely. In verse 27, Jesus makes an astonishing set of claims, in case the first verse wasn't astonishing enough. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. This is probably surprising news to those who thought they knew the Father through, say, the story of Israel. Right? Like, we, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. We know God as Yahweh. How can you say now that we don't really know God? Jesus is making an unparalleled claim of authority, one that could only be made by someone that, well, has exclusive and sole access to God. This is the basis for C.S. Lewis's famous argument that Jesus cannot simply be a nice moral teacher. He has lots of good ideas, he has lots of nice stories, but if he is not speaking the truth here, then he is either insane and claiming that he alone has access to God, or he's the deepest and worst kind of liar, or he's actually the one that he says he is, the one who has sole and exclusive knowledge of who God is, the one who now mediates the knowledge of the Father, the one who gives it and reveals it in a way that no one and nothing else can. So you either kind of get on the train or get off the train here. Either Jesus is lying here or he's not. And if he is, then everything else changes and everything else can fall at his feet and bow to him because he is the only one who reveals the Father. No rival powers or religions, no rival traditions, no rival authorities. Not even the Torah can claim to give you knowledge of God except through Jesus. How can that give us rest? Well, how much of your striving comes from the suspicion that you don't have all the information you need? That you have been lied to or that you have been pulled, something has been pulled over your head? We seek, and we live in an age that prioritizes seeking with giant spiritual, spiritual practices sections in the bookstore because people are seeking because they, we have been taught to distrust all authority. We've been taught that anyone who's claiming to have the final word is trying to pull something and try to hide some agenda. But here, in Jesus, what he's saying is that when we have him, we have the Father, and we don't have to go seeking anywhere else. We don't have to go searching the traditions of men. We don't have to go seeking all the other religions of the world. We can actually rest that in Jesus, we actually know what we need to know about God. This doesn't mean that he says he's answered all the questions there might be. What he's saying is that life's deepest and most abiding questions have their answer in him. 
In him, we know who God is. And so in him, we know who we are. We know what the world means. We know everything else in the light of who the Father is, and we find that out through him and through him alone. So we can rest knowing that we know what we need to know in Jesus. And nothing has been hidden from us that we need to know. It's all there in him, because all of it has been given to him by the Father, and it has been revealed to you. That's the last important aspect of this, to know in Jesus that God is gracious. Because you might be wondering, well, am I one of those wise guys and know-it-alls who doesn't understand, who doesn't see it? Well, listen to verse 28, and you can see how many people God, Jesus is interested in. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. In Jesus, we know that God is gracious, that his call goes out not to some few, but to all, to all who are labored and heavy laden. That is, to all who know their limit, to all who have reached the end of their ability to do and realize it's not enough, to all who know that they cannot know everything, to all who know that they don't and aren't within themselves what they want to be and what they need to be, who know, like Paul, that see in themselves a delight in something good and yet the inability to do it because an opposing will constantly battles against them. To those who know, to put it simply, that they are sinners, that they are flawed, that their flaws run deeper than they could ever understand, that their failures run deeper than they could ever know, but that Jesus, precisely because of your inadequacy, because of of all of our inadequacy, he wants us to know him to call us to himself. Notice who he calls himself to, not to my uh, technique, my method. Come to me. Learn from me. And actually, in verse 29, the Greek could go two different ways. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And it could be like this, and I think it should be, that I am gentle and lowly in heart. Learn from me what the Father's heart looks like. Learn from my self-humbling love As you follow me on the way to the cross, when I humble myself even to the point of death at the hands of my enemies and for the sake of my enemies, for for all of those who are heavy laden and don't have enough to be what God calls them to be, for those who have set themselves in opposition against God, these are the people I have called. These are the people I am here for. And these are the people that I am going to give my life to save, to humble myself to the point of death, to redeem that I'm going to empty myself to fill their lack. So if you can recognize this limit in yourself and this inability in yourself, then you are the person that Jesus is calling this day. If you can recognize in yourself your inability to make this world what it ought to be, to make yourself or your family what they ought to be, then Jesus is talking to you and calling you to take upon you his light and easy yoke, which is nothing other than the trust that he has carried everything that he has given you what you cannot have yourself, that he has filled all that you lack, because he has called to himself. And we one last thing in this. When he promises to give you rest, you need to recognize that that is deeply connected to what he just said about the Father. Because in Exodus 33, one of the promises of God and his presence among them to the people of Israel is that he will give them rest. And so in this passage, when Jesus says he will give them rest, He's not simply claiming to be Lord over the Torah. He is claiming to be Yahweh with them, to be God among them, 
giving them what they cannot be themselves, giving them what they cannot achieve themselves, rest. The rest of knowing that God is sovereign, the rest of knowing that God is truly revealed to them, and the rest of knowing that God is gracious towards them precisely because they fail. This is not the rest of an all-inclusive resort, I admit. It's not. It is not the rest where you sit back and do nothing and everyone brings you drinks and food. It's not the rest that relieves you of all labor. The life of following Jesus is not free from challenge or sorrow or opposition. It's not. We heard that very clearly in the last couple weeks. But it is rest because it is the call that by faith alone, faith in Jesus, you know who God is and you know he's got this. You know he's going to carry this through. And at the end of all things, you will be able to look back on the story that God has led creation through and see that it is good. And see that it is as good as the resurrection of Jesus. You'll see that God's character and nature is to empty himself for the people that he loves. For the people who failed him. For the people who have rebelled against him and and failed one another. It is the rest of knowing that God is for you. Precisely because you are not enough. So it might not be like an all-inclusive resort. Maybe, if we can stretch the metaphor and if you can work with me, it's more like a really good family reunion. If a really high-functioning family reunion, where your father has organized this, and you know it's going to go according to plan, and you know it's going to go well, and everyone's going to have a good time, even if your goth sister shows up with all her cats. It's going to go well, because the father is organizing this. And also, like, your older brother has paid for everything. So you're still going to have to help out. You're still going to have to make, to make some food and do some dishes. But you know it's all been paid for by him. And it's not costing you a thing. It's all a gift. And lastly, you know you belong because you're part of the family. Not because you've done anything to earn your way in this family, but simply because you're part of the family. That's what Jesus gave himself in love to make you. It's not an all-inclusive resort, but it's the rest of knowing that you belong that someone's in control, and that God has given himself for you in love. So let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for revealing yourself to us in your son, Jesus. For taking upon him, for putting upon him, the burden of our sin and our failure. For revealing yourself to us in him. And for reigning even over the rejection and opposition of his ministry. We ask that you reign over our hearts giving us eyes to see our need and to see how Jesus fills it, and that you give us the joy of your salvation to trust that Jesus has truly borne all and will carry us through. We ask all this in the name of Jesus, your Son, our Lord. Amen.